This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday morning mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. He is Andrew Page from strawman.com, which is, Andrew? It's a website. It's a website. <laughs> is, is, is it the Premier Online Investment Club or private? Which one are you going with? A listener had a suggestion that it might be Premier. Premier does have a nice ring Doesn't to it. Doesn't it? I like yes. that a lot. Yes. Like private has exclusivity going for it. So, mm. room for both? Well, I, I, Possibly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, the <laughs> preeminent private Premier Investment Club. There you go. Online. Online investment club. It's important. Don't forget, Andrew. I've only heard it from you once and I've already remembered it. You've, you've forgotten. Um, mate, um, let's kick off with... Uh, with uh, oh, sorry, of course, I need to check on your exercise regime. You've, you've been out, I assume? I, do you know what? Right, I, I actually, last night, I caught up with some friends and we had a few beers. And when I say a few beers, I literally mean like a few okay. beers. Okay. But I'm just getting to a certain age where it's like, I don't... <laughs> So I don't bounce back that well, and and so no, I the, the, we no. didn't we didn't, okay. I didn't do the uh, triathlon this morning. Oh well, there you go. But you gotta you yeah. gotta give yourself some time off, mate. Self care, they call it these days. Self care, yes, Self-care. exactly. Mate, you sent me some questions. You sent me two questions, which you allege are from a bloke called Andrew. You also allege they're not from you. <laughs> now, the only reason I think that might be the truth, as you pointed out to me in reply, was that neither of these questions are about Bitcoin or property. <laughs> Yes. And we know very well. I, I, I imagined. I imagined that your perfect question would be something like, "Dear Andrew, could you please give me your views on both Bitcoin <laughs> and housing, including the pros and cons of each, and a detailed summary as to why I should invest in your preferred option?" I think that that would probably be your 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 perfect question. That is not oh, the yes. question. There's other Andrew no. asked though, so I, I am going to bypass that one because yeah. uh, if I don't keep talking, it, if I take even a slight breath, you're going to jump in and try and start answering it. So it's I, a very common. Like- <laughs> it's a very common name. I'll say that as well. Allegedly, so it, it definitely wasn't me. So Andrew starts with uh, equal weighted ETFs as a mm. statement. He says, "My understanding is they rebalance every month. Isn't that a case of watering the weeds and digging up the flowers?" I think the idea of equal weighting has merit, but the investments should be allowed to run their course for a much longer time than a month. Three years, perhaps, he says, to sort out the winners from the losers. Maybe they should be structured as closed-end funds. He said, or well, maybe they already exist. Do you want to have first go? Give me send it to you, or do you want me no, to kick off? No, you go first. So here's my... I, I'm going to... Andrew, I've got some thoughts on this because we've had a similar challenge with some of the services who run at The Motley Fool. And the challenge is every investor buys at different points in time. So if you don't rebalance, say you don't rebalance for three years, if I buy the ETF today and Rand buys in 18 months' time, I've got three years on mine, he's only got 18 months left on his. Or if we do it individually, then we have these individual accounts which have you know a tiny fraction of an ETF in at any, at any point in time. So you kind of have this really weird situation where if you're rebalancing anything, every investor's time frame is different because they all buy in at different points in time during that ETF's life. So a three-year period from now is fine. But if I buy in any point between now and three years' time when it rebalances, I'm getting a, a half rebalance or, or, or a half-life or some combination of that uh, for, the, for the rebalancing. So I like your idea. I don't know how practical it would be to give every investor the same experience. So then you start trying to game. Well, hang on, do I buy in at the beginning? Do I not buy in between rebalancings? You know, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really, really difficult. Um, 
again, not a bad idea, just the practicalities. And the reason I say that is we've, we've looked at it for how we talk about our returns for our investors who've joined some of our services. And again, they all join at different times as well. And so we just said, well, we have to do it from the beginning of the service because we can't track every individual investor's returns or do it differently. So had some, I've already had some thoughts about that. But it's, it's a really, really good point. In terms of watering the weeds and digging up the flowers, I think you're kind of right. Um, it's really, that's why eco waiting is so hard, right? It's why, it's why market waiting makes so much sense because it's always, con- let me use a really wanky big word, contemporaneous. In other words, the value is the value is the value at any point in time. And that's what you're trying to do is match the value of the market. So market capitalization weighted makes perfect sense. It's really easy to manage. Anytime you build something that has to be rebalanced, you invite that question of when do you do it? How do you do it? And what's the impact of doing it? At some point, the rebalancing, yes, it absolutely, you're right. It absolutely waters your weeds and pulls out your flowers. Uh, there, is, there is no getting around that. So what's going to happen? Well, rather than, rather than weeds of flowers, what you'll find is it depends on what stage of the market cycle you're in. We went through an enormous period over the last 15 or so years, maybe it's even 20 now around because I'm getting old, where the composition of the US S&P 500, it's easier to use that one because our composition hasn't changed much here. In the US, the composition changed from the big companies would have been GE, General Motors, uh, ExxonMobil, probably Berkshire would have been up there somewhere as long as it was a bit smaller then. Um, other, other, you know, Bethlehem Steel, AT and T, you know, these these old old school businesses. And then, as they as they grew from that, uh, sorry, as, as the market grew, other companies took over. Now, equal weighting those kind of gives you the upside as that growth happens because you kind of the small companies are worth more early on, so you kind of get that. But at some point, as you say, it crosses over, and when they become big enough, then keep growing, you do end up with exactly the problem you highlight, which is watering the weeds and digging up the flowers. It's why I don't love, I love the idea as intellectual exercise. I think it works really well in some markets. It doesn't work well in other markets. So you kind of, not deliberately, but by effect, you end up having to try and time it. Or if you don't try, you still benefit or suffer from timing impacts for exactly that reason. If the big guys fall a lot, for example, then you don't lose as much as would happen if you were market weighted. If the little guys grow faster, uh, you're going to get more benefit. But if it's the other way around, if the big guys grow faster, you're missing out on the opportunity to, to capitalize and all that sort of stuff. So you kind of, it ends up being an active strategy because of that rebalancing. Uh, how you do it differently, I don't know that you can um, because the, the weights will always change between the two types of indexing because of the way that works. Um, and again, it depends on when you start because every the weighting will change over time and you'll simply get different results. So I, I know a lot of the research says some of the products have seen the equal weight outperform. I would suspect, and I claim no expertise here and certainly no ability to forecast, but I would suspect it's more to do with the type of market we're in and the types of companies that are growing faster than the others rather than anything about the equal weighted index itself. Ram? Yeah, it is a tough one, isn't it? I, I, while you were speaking there, I, I brought up the uh, MVW, the Van Eck equal weighted um, ETF for the ASX. And uh, that has lagged uh, just the Vanguard uh, S&P ASX 200 ETF uh, by a little bit. You know, one's done one and a half percent over the last year. Dividends excluded. The others up to three quarters of one percent. Right. Interestingly, though, you sort of go to three years and the equal weight has done 13 percent odd. And Mm. the uh, Vanguard uh, traditional ETF is up eight percent. And then you go to five and 10 years and it's actually quite stark Hmm. um i'm always mindful though 
This is where backtest, I always, I'm always yeah. very skeptical of backtesting because I, you know, I think all investors at one point go, actually, this is a cool tool. I can, <laughs> I, <have an> idea. <laughs> I can go back and see what works and yeah. go, you know, had I done this, 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 and this, I would mm -hmm. have massively outperformed the market. And that's a statement of fact, right? Mm -hmm. With the benefit of hindsight. The trouble is if that worked, we would all backtest and figure out what worked and we would just do it. And what worked for mm -hmm. that decade may not work for this decade. And, and... So I haven't done it for the US market, but I, I suspect there we've seen it has been the, the bigger companies that have done really well there. So maybe that's not the case. Here in Australia, we've got uh, the banks, which we've often, well, I've certainly loved to put the bird into and said they've done <laughs> nothing in five years. But CBA is yeah. a bit of an outlier there. Yeah. Uh, and Macquarie, but you know the others have done nothing. I mean, woeful investments. And that's just dragged you lower. Um, so one will perform better under certain circumstances another will perform better under others and and yeah. you know you might sort of say the the other intellectual argument might be well it's like well the bigger ones by definition have less scope for growth or usually all else being equal mm -hmm. so but by being equal weight i'm having more money in the smaller the tail end of the index yeah. which which gives me more upside exposure so you go round and round and round and round in circles on this thing. And there that's is that's just right. no, yeah. there's no way to know. There's no yeah. way to know going right now, February of 2024, which one should you go with? No, I don't <laughs> exactly. know. Exactly. I, don't, I, I don't know. I personally, given the structure of the, if we're talking about the ASX, mm. where you've got, what is it? 35% in two miners and four banks. And someone like me who just doesn't, is not a big commodity guy and and not yeah. a certainly not a bank fan. Mm -hmm. I'm going the equal weight, right? Yeah. I, I I don't want that much concentration in stocks I don't like or mm. value propositions at this point in the cycle that I don't like. Let me choose my words carefully. Um, so that's where I'm going to go. But that's just a reflection of my bias, which and and my intuition, which could be hundred percent wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that's a really wishy washy answer, but it's the best I've got. No, and that, and that, I, I think it just well, I, I would say this agrees with mine, which is it depends on what happens in the market, it depends on the market dynamics at the time, and mm. as as you rightly point out, mate, that's exactly what we saw in that one year, then the three year difference. Um, you've got to know how the market's going to operate, and then you kind of then as you get then into active rather than passive investing. Yeah. And then you, you know, I really, I'm really, really, really not a fan of of once you once you leave active, once you leave completely passive investing, hmm. uh, and you still have to make the choice of which passive investments to have. But you know, you either you either do it passively. Once you are, once you in, once you do anything, even even though Andrew's not trying to be active, he was trying. To, well, isn't this a better passive option? The reality is, you get different outcomes depending on how the market acts. Yep. And so you, you're making active choices at that point. And you go, say, well, okay, I want that rather than that because it makes a difference because it's better or worse. And there might be different, different circumstances. And I might be tempted to change that. When do I buy it? When don't I? All that kind of stuff. It just gets really, really difficult really quickly. But right, really, really good question. Um, it's one that I think people have asked before. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very important one. You know um, what? Here's the, here's the beauty of, of, of um, markets and equities and stuff. It's not like a house where, you know, a few of us can afford to go, well, I'm just going to buy all of the houses that I like. You know? <laughs> exactly. You, know, you can do that. You can do that here. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. I wouldn't find it too egregious <laughs> at all if you just said, I don't know. So I'm going to go half in the, yeah. the passive and half in the equal weight. I think that's yeah. Even then, it's still. I still think it's anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, there there is an there is yeah. You you can't d divorce a a certain strategy and viewpoint ar around that. Correct, but correct. but it's a, but I'm fine. just saying I'm just saying it's an option. If if yes. you split, you can you can reflect that in the actual yeah. uh, what you hold. Yeah, good point. I like that. 
Uh, all right. The second question is even uh, more fascinating. About ETFs in general, he says, I'm concerned they give too much power to the ETF manager to follow a political agenda, e.g. Larry Fink. Since ETF investors have almost by definition no particular interest in a given co- company, perhaps the solution is for ETFs to have no voting rights. I'll make mm. you go first this time, Matt. Yeah. I am a little <laughs> uncomfortable with that too. I mean, BlackRock and Larry, they're really the main drivers of mm. the ESG phenomena. They've been very big on that. And I, I would say given they are the largest asset manager in the world, uh, significantly <laughs> so, yep. um, they have they have been very responsible for that. <laughs> Gotta be careful that how people interpret that as in like, oh, well, you got a problem with people being ethical and having good governance? And like, no. Why do no, you hate very, people, Andrew? I don't, I'm very much You hate much people and you hate the planet, apparently. I don't. I just, I, it, it is, it is a, a good intention that has been captured and productized. And mm-hmm. I think there's all kinds of nonsense. We've, we've uh, you know, uh, waxed lyrical yep. on, on all of that before. Yep. But the point stands, like, what happens if BlackRock was... Uh, more in favor of, I don't know, choose your preferred yeah. um, political agenda. And, and yeah, I, I don't know if I, I want them having that power. I, I'm happy for you to sort of bundle this product together so mm-hmm. I can get nice, easy, broad, low-cost access to the market. Great. Mm-hmm. Do I want you then to have the power to influence boards and mandates and the rest of it? I, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, what do you think? I'm equally torn um you know one of the things about principles is they have to apply equally whether you like the outcome or not if it's yes. a principle. yeah otherwise otherwise it's just a preference dressed up in noble clothing yep um you know the old right to free speech thing you know i'll defend the right your death to say it type stuff um yep. defend the death you're right to say it sorry mm. um i so the principle has to, has to apply appropriately if, if larry decided he actually wanted more coal mines and you know, whatever else, uh, we'd have to be happy with that if we're going to be an active vote at the, you know, the fact he happens to be pro-ESG, if you're, if you're an ESG kind of person, you love it. Oh, great. Gary's, you know, Larry's great. There's a great principle we've got here that they can be involved unless they change their minds, in which case they don't like the principle anymore. And it's not mm. a principle. Mm. I don't... I'm, I'm not sure, mate, whether... Can you, can you help me with this? Mm. With their passive... With BlackRock's passive indexes, indices... Uh, passive ETFs. Do they do they vote the same way as they do with their active stuff? I'm not sure. Because that's that's a bit I'm not sure about know. Andrew. Not you, Andrew. Yeah. The other Andrew yeah. is I. They should have a fiduciary duty. Look, well, here's the other problem, right? If you're if you have a fiduciary duty and your view is strongly that exercising that fiduciary duty means keeping out of things that probably will be stranded assets like coal mines for example and again when i say probably i mean on their view not mine mm. um although i think i might be right but that's a different different question um then what else do you want them to do and the other problem is if you don't if they don't have voting rights it kind of turbocharges everyone else's voting right so as a as an investor if, if blackrock or vanguard or whoever else don't vote my shares then effectively that abstaining or abstinence from voting means anyone else who wants to vote kind of ends up with a larger proportion. Uh, and so their vote carries more weight than it would even if, if you know, and again, in different directions. Let's say ESG guys get on and, and vote and, and, and BlackRock doesn't, then the ESG has more. If the anti-ESG guys do the same, then BlackRock, again, not voting has its own implications. So it's kind of a bit like your equal weight ETFs. You can't avoid the implication either way. Um, 
<clears throat> I, I, I'm, I'm balanced, mate. I will say I'm not worried about it uh, because I don't, I think, I think in, on balance, the people who are doing it are exercising their best judgment, which as managers is all you can ask them to do. And I think overall, if I disagreed massively and would I take my money out? Maybe, yeah. Um, but I think I think my shares are better represented being voted than abstaining, I think. Um, I think my interests are better managed. Because again, we say, we talk about ESG, that would also apply to things like who's the best director? Or do we, do we change the way the company's run? Or do we vote on changes of business operations? At some point... If you're going to, again, do you just constrain those votes to ESG issues or not? Or is it all issues? You know, when, when, do, when does an ETF vote or when don't they vote? I think overall, I think I want my shares voted or available to be voted by the manager in the best long-term interest of the company in which my ETF um, invests. So I, th I think on balance, as much as I'm uncomfortable like you are and like Graham is, but I think on balance, I'd rather them do it than not. Is that, is that, am I speaking out of my sort of mouth here, mate? What, what, little, yeah, you know, a little bit, but I mean, it's, it's, it depends, doesn't it? Like that's, that the, really that's the tricky, <laughs> I mean, maybe, and maybe that's the answer. Maybe, yeah. maybe you just sort of say, listen, we just take, you just don't have the option. You know, it, it, as, as an ETF provider, mm. you don't get to, you don't get to vote. But then as ETFs, be, and they are growing, they are a very significant part of the market now. Yeah. You yeah. get to a point where it's sort of like, well, then who's voting if you can't vote? And then does that, does that give, uh, boards and directors more of a free reign, or does it give more smaller smaller holders much more of a say? I that's a tricky one. It really, mm -hmm. I, I'd have to really meditate on it for a little bit. But yeah, <laughs> these are these are very these are very uh, tricky issues with unintended consequences. Yeah, I'd probably lean, I'd probably lean towards saying no, mm. but mm. I might I'm open. To, I'm, I reserve the right to change my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think I'm yes on the same on the same way because I think removing the vote is an active decision that I don't think we need to take for its own sake. Mm. And there's no reason why if I own the share directly I could vote them. Am I am I better or worse served as a shareholder by having my shares not voted? Mm. Um, I don't know. Mate, here's a question from Scott. <laughs> We've got a question from Andrew. A question from Scott. <laughs> this is also not from me. Um, Scott says, good afternoon, gents. I'm a very long-time listener and still loving every episode on Ye Oldie Podcast Machine, <laughs> which I like. I have a question about the Australian banking sector oligopoly. We spoke a little bit about that on Friday. And how a so-called challenger could stand a chance in this environment. In particular, I'm curious about Judo Bank. By all accounts, they seem to be crushing it. They're executing as planned, have an experienced management team. They found a lead insider ownership and a shareholder focused. However... The market has continued to punish the share price, even when they release positive earnings, according to plans and forecast. Please, gents, help me, quotes, square this circle. Cheers from Scott R. Not Scott P, Scott R. Uh, just proving that it wasn't me asking the question. <laughs> it's a good one, mate. Um, there is so much benefit of incumbency for the big four Australian banks. The, the last lot of challenges kind of got bought up. Bank West went, St. George went. Uh, Bank SA went, Bank of Melbourne went. Um, the little guys, the little regionals that remain have really never, ever made any inroads into the big guys. It just seems to be a bit of a, you know, it's, it seems pretty cut and dry. I don't think anyone's making any headway. Scott's asking about judo, obviously, talking about the bank itself, but to some degree also the share price. That's 
they're kind of different questions too, I think. The Challenger Bank in terms of market share or results are one thing. Um, I will say, by the way, the shares have jumped up since we got this question. Uh, last week or so, they've gone from 90 cents to about $1.20. So uh, things, maybe things have improved, Scott. Maybe you're less unhappy than you used to be. I that's, don't, a 30, so, that's a 30% gain. That right? ain't bad. Mm. So I'm kind of not sure exactly how we should deal with Scott's question. I think he's talking about the, the challenge of bank in general, but also seems generally less happy about the share price than the company. So I guess I'll start there, uh, Scott. Uh, ignore the share price, mate. Um, and I, I, the other, well, ignore the share price, easy for me to say, right? If your shares are down, you're feeling pretty grumpy. Um, the other thing is, I don't think there's anything about it being a challenge of bank in terms of the share price. I mean, maybe if you think banks, people go straight to CBA or they go to NAB or ANZ or Westpac, but that's that's going to be the case with large cap versus small cap anything. Um, I don't think I'd read anything into the share price performance that has anything to do with the fact it's not one of the big four in, a, in any sort of meaningful way. The, the, the share market's big enough. There's money to be made. Someone's buying the shares. You know, if they think it's a great business, uh, you don't have to hold the big four only. You can add judo. You can take some money out of the big four. You can hold judo instead, or you can own just judo, none of the big four. Uh, I wouldn't suspect there's anything kind of untoward going on there. It's just the curse of smaller companies generally, and Ram knows all about that, as he's talked about plenty of times. Mm. When you're not followed, it's a great opportunity as an investor to buy something cheap because no one's following it. The problem is then as soon as you buy it, you want to work out why no one else is following it, and you wish someone would so they'd pay more for the shares. Maybe it's in that kind of range. Any particular thoughts on competition or, or judo in general, mate? Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't followed judo. I'm just scrolling through some of the prezos, though, and I see where Scott's coming at. He's doing really doing well. well. Can I doing say one really of our analysts, well. Trevor Machedzi, uh, is a massive fan of judo bank, like it a lot. So I, I, you're not your pat my line there, Scott? Yeah, so the first half to 2024 performance, we're 24% increased profit before tax, and they grew their loan book by $800 million for the half. Uh, it's three times system business credit growth, and you know they're kicking goals. So, so why is the share price down so much? Now they've only been listed. Hey, we're doing some we're doing some analysis on the fly, which is always <laughs> always risky. A little uh, but they listed in sort of late 2021. Now, if mm. you cast your mind back, it was a reasonably frothy time for the market and listings. I my gut is, if I was to guess, I would say that the falling share price was more of a consequence of overinflated expectations at that stage. Mm. Than, than it was of poor performance. But business has performed well by all accounts. It's just that the market had some pretty pretty maybe unreasonable expectations. Mm. And this is a good thing for those that are focused on the business and not the shares because you now, even with the, the rally in, in recent months, you get to buy it at half price of what it was when it listed near enough. And you've got more water under the bridge that suggests that actually things seem to be going pretty well. And I'm paying half price now. So if you were unfortunate enough or unlucky enough to sort of buy in early, okay, I get it. It sucks. But that was then, this is now. And that's all you can do as an investor and go, huh, uh, it, looks, it looks reasonably interesting. I'm not mm. condoning this guy. I've not, I've yeah, not looked yeah. at the business. So maybe it's a, a complete disaster under the hood. I don't know, mm. but it looks pretty good. And I know that I know that I can get it much, much cheaper than, than I could before. That's not a scenario where I would be thinking, and not, not that Scott is necessarily, but I wouldn't be thinking I want to let go of this. In fact, <laughs> yeah, it's like right. the, the investment case seems to have strengthened unless your investment case was it was, okay, it's grown at three times systems growth, but I was expecting eight times systems growth, in which case, yes, your, th your thesis was perhaps a little um, optimistic. Um, so there's that. Um, the, the, one of the negatives of the smaller challenger banks, I'm, or I think we, I'm, I'm of the view that 
I would prefer to have a lot more banks, smaller banks and banks mm. that we were willing to let fail. I think that actually does, I think we makes a more robust uh, system and better competition. And I think that the, the consumer wins as opposed to having it all concentrated in an oligopoly, which is exactly, exactly what it is. Right. What, what judo doesn't enjoy, and this is implicit, not explicit, is that if they got into trouble, goodbye judo. If Westpac gets into trouble, they'll be bailed out. Now, you can't guarantee that. Call me a cynic, yada, yada, yada. But that's going to happen in my view. And, I will and- say, though, my thing I always get reminding people is if the bank gets bailed, it doesn't mean shareholders will be made whole. So the bank the bank it may survive as an organization, but the shareholders still might get oh, yeah. cleaners. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. But the people who made the decisions, yes, and these right. are the moral hazard argument for it. So, so, so what does that mean? It means... Even though the shareholders might still still mm-hmm. get it handed to them, I might be far more flamboyant and, and cavalier on my lending decisions as a, as a mm-hmm. operator in the big four than I would be at judo. Judo has to be a lot more careful because yeah. they, they yeah. don't have that implicit guarantee. Um, and or by the way, the, uh, the business that is uh, structured to give it the internal diversification either. There's yeah. something about being a specialist. There's also something about being diversified. Yes. Um, if you you know if you, if you're in a great place, you can turbocharge the results. If if business banking or your particular business banking struggles, you can't kind of turn to the other pillar and say it's okay. We've got this business over here. It, and you know what's also crazy? Like the people always prefer the bigger banks, right? Because yeah. they feel safer. Hmm. Now, and, and, and there's that sort of sort of government guarantee that's in in all of that. But all banks. I, th- I believe have the um, deposit guarantee uh, available to them. Yeah, we need to be a little bit careful, but effect- effectively all of them do. If yep. it's a small, if it's a small financial institution, just be very, very, very careful to make sure it does. Mm. But all, for, for our, for all intents and purposes, any any significant bank will be covered. Yeah, they, they have to meet certain rules. But yes, effectively we can assume that's true. But don't assume that's true when you're doing your own money. For the sake of the exercise, we'll say it's true. Just, yes. just ne- never never rely on that. Always check with your bank. Well, assuming it is true for this particular bank, yeah. and I think it well, is. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is, yeah. You know, it's sort of like, what's the difference? Like, if they're offering you a yeah. better deal, and if they do go belly up, you're still, unless it's more than, what is it, $250,000 or something, mm-hmm. um, you know, your, your, your money is, is sort of safe. And just, and just by to be the way, really clear, I just, just sorry, just quickly, mate, um, I just looked it up, and yes, they say under the financial claim scheme, deposits are protected, up to a limit of $250,000 for each account holder at Judo Bank. So there you go. It's off their website. So why wouldn't you do it? If they're offering you if they're offering you uh, as good a service and better interest rates, and I don't know if that is the case, but if they are offering you all of that, why the hell wouldn't you? I just know exactly, a lot of yeah. us don't do it because it <laughs> feels risky. And I feel that's an overhang of a mm-hmm. different era when mm-hmm. there were vaults and cash at the bank you know when it wasn't just numbers in a database somewhere and and you kind of wanted that strength of the institution behind it you know but in the, in the modern era it's not necessarily that much of uh, of a difference um so what am i saying there i i i don't know i wish them well i i i think that the the, the big four really do need to have more challenger brands sort of come up and 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 keep them honest <laughs> uh, at least to a, to a to a greater degree nice motley full money for more subscribe to the free newsletter at full.com.au forward slash listener now here's a great question from dan this is g'day scott and ram my question is likely as much a psychological question as it is an investing question 
I have what I can would I start again. I have what I would consider a solid portfolio of diversified shares in companies that I really still like as much now, if not more, than the day I first bought them. Having said that, during my young investing journey, I've had to fly through a lot of turbulence as I bought most of the stocks in my portfolio at the end of 2021 when prices were sky high and I hold a lot of tech and small cap stocks. As I said earlier, I still really like the companies I own, despite some of them having some serious ground to make up. My question is in regards to where I go from here. I have no qualms with averaging down with some of the positions I'm down quite notably on, but if it ends with myself, whether, given my personal circumstances, it'd be worth doing in fear of watering the weeds of my portfolio. Hmm. I only consider myself to have a novice ability to value stocks, being a blue-collar worker with a self-taught knowledge of investing, as well as being relatively time-poor with two kids under two at home, and as a result, not being able to invest as frequently as I would like. My investment goal is to create a portfolio of stocks that I'd never sell. And given in my 20s and have a long run up to retirement, I'm considering wiping my portfolio of individual stocks clean and just averaging into a couple of index funds. My thinking here is that although I'm down approximately 20% of my portfolio, which is currently at a market value of about 20 grand, given the fact I can use the losses to offset future capital gain stacks, and I'm so early in my journey of compounding, that at retirement, the losses I'd be crystallizing now will have little impact on my end result. Would this be an acceptable strategy or would I be breaking Charlie Munger's rule of not interrupting compounding unnecessarily if I still hold conviction in the companies that I own? General advice only, as I'm sure there are other young listeners who would feel the same way as they turn their minds to investing. Thanks a lot, Dan. Great question, Dan. What Great do you reckon, question. Ram? It depends. I'm going to go with my it depends <laughs> answer. I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you, it's hard to know without knowing the stocks. Yeah. And even if I yeah. did know the stocks, it assumes that I know what the hell I'm talking about in regard to those specific <laughs> stocks, which chances yeah. are I don't. So, you know, they're, they're, it is frustrating to be down 20%. We've all been there. I think yeah. any investor is going to be there at multiple stages throughout their journey, if not more. Speaking of Charlie Munger, he says, if you're not able to weather a 40% or 50% drawdown at multiple times throughout your career, you do not mm. deserve to be a common stockholder and you yeah. deserve the very average returns that you will get. So he's, he puts it very bluntly. So, you know, it is normal. This is normal. Yep. Like, uh, yeah, you're down 20%. Does it suck? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, should you sell or buy more or hold? Well, that's why it depends because if – now, I'll, I'll take – I'll take the listener at face value here and say that actually their conviction is unshaken because mm. there's nothing changed with the business and it remains intact. Assuming that analysis and view is correct, then no, keep keep on it. Add more to it, right? Um, uh, if if you're not confident in that view, then I would lean the other way. I would go, yeah, no, just just buy it in the ETF. You're gonna you're gonna have no tax when you sell, so there's no consequences mm-hmm. there. Press a few buttons, you're still exposed to the market. The market will probably go very well over the next forty years, at least relative to other asset classes. Um, uh, you know, you will mm-hmm. grow your purchasing power over that period of time, and you, you will not be upset with with that with that decision. The other thing is is to remember too is to this is the time to make mistakes. So it sucks down to be, be down 20%. So if the, if the portfolio is down 20, if, if it's worth 20 grand now, do the maths right here, that means you've lost five grand. Yep. Now, I, I don't want to like be flipping about it, but in, in the, and I don't want to suggest for us, I mean, 
I do not want to lose five grand myself. Even if I had a $10 million portfolio, five grand is five grand is five grand. <laughs> right, right? I'll spend it. Yeah, exactly. I can have some fun with that money. Yeah, right? I, don't, yeah. I don't want to lose it. Yeah. But losing 20% on a 25 grand portfolio is very different than losing 20% on a million dollar portfolio. So these are the times to sort of, to to make these mistakes, assuming that you have made a mistake and you may, you may not well, uh, mm. may not have at all. Um, so I'm going all over the place with with this kind of answer, but um, and 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 I, and I would say this too: you can have that sort of each way bet where we've and I've certainly advocated as put maybe a, a majority into the ETFs because it's just mm. easy and it's relatively safe, um, and then keep a little bit in direct investments. You get to sort of have the experience the learnings, as they say, yeah. the lessons, um, and you get to sort of practice your your craft. Um, and as you get better and better and better at that, you can continually wait more into the direct kind of stuff. Um, so that's an option as, as well. It doesn't have to be, do I stay all here or go all there? You, you can have a little bit each way. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, mate? So I think you're 100% right, um, but also that Dan may choose to do something very different. So Dan, a couple of thoughts for me. I reckon you are questioning your own ability to pick stocks as much as your own long-term strategy. Um, why would you wipe the slate clean? Well, probably because you're down 20% you're thinking, ah, uh, this feels a bit uncomfortable. You wouldn't be Not thinking it if that. you were up 20%. Right, right? exactly. Mm -hmm. Now. And you've said many times, mate, some of the best things you do as a young investor is lose the first time because then you, yes. you, don't, you, don't, you don't think you're infallible and, and all that kind of stuff. So Dan, I, I guess you've you got you to try and work out for yourself, how long do you want to do this investing thing before you work out whether you're actually good at it? And I don't mean you personally, but I do mean you personally in this case because you asked the question, but I mean anybody. Um, I, could, I could decide to take up competitive tennis and I could say, oh, I've lost my first, I lost my, you know, I'm, I've lost my first 14 games in a row and so you stick out and eventually you'll win Wimbledon, Scott. I'm like, ah, oh, I, I probably, probably not. No, probably won't. Now, Wimbledon is a winner takes all, or at least someone wins, everyone else loses. Share investing is not that. But at some point, I should probably recognize that I'm not going to win Wimbledon. Now, if I am good enough to win Wimbledon, I should keep playing. If I'm not, I can either play for the fun of it and have mediocre results, but enjoy it. That's a very reasonable thing to do. Or I can say, I'm going to go and put my money on... I was going to say Boris Becky because I'm old. That's the first name that came to mind around. <laughs> that whoever, whoever wins tennis games these days. That is a um, Rafa or Novak or yeah, Roger or someone. Um, I go throw my hope for the, the demon, Alex Dimonor. Um I go throw my money on them and let them do their thing. And so that's a horribly tortured analogy. It's not even very accurate uh, when it comes to investing because I think, Dan, you're asking yourself, I'm down 20%. Is it me or is it the market? And we don't know because you, you haven't told us what companies you, you bought. And even if you did, we wouldn't know what the future holds any more than you do. We could have some guesses, as Ram said, but we don't know. Uh, and I think, I think there's a really worthwhile conversation for you to have with yourself. To Ram's point, the amount of money you're working with is a lot, a heap. But hopefully by retirement, you look back and go, oh, it wasn't that much in, in, in hindsight. Um, and so you have got time to, to have a play and see if it works for you, if you want to keep doing that. If you have decided this is too stressful, difficult, hard, I don't know if I'm good at it, I don't really want to spend the time, you're talking about being time poor, you know, I think your personal circumstances, you'll work out for yourself whether you actually want to buy stocks. And one thing I would say, particularly to blokes, is uh, not necessarily you, Dan, but just check the ego a little bit. Uh, if I if I discover tomorrow I actually sucked at picking stocks, uh, I hope I would have the, uh, the, the ego-lessness to say, I'm just going to put an ETF because I'm not very good at this. 
rather than doing over and over again and crappy results and going, eventually I'll come good. <laughs> or I can't admit to myself I'm not good at this. I'm going to keep going because I'm a bloke and that's what we do. Um, you know, 90% of us are above average drivers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, at some point, someone's not good at investing and they shouldn't try and they should just buy an ETF. So, so I think that's probably just something for you to think about, mate. Um, don't be too despondent about the returns, easy for me to say, since 2011 because the whole market's down uh, in tech and, and it's been a tough time. That being said, um, working out whether you whether you should have conviction that you think you do is also worth asking, right? So you're saying you've got as much conviction. If you're right, you absolutely should as Ram says, double down, stay with it. Uh, but if you've got conviction and your conviction's wrong, then doubling down right now would be a terrible thing to do. So averaging down is, is always, you just, you've, got, you've got to be right. And, and there is no easy way to know the answer to that. One last thought from me though, Dan, you've you bought some small caps and some tech stocks and you want to hold them to retirement. I'm going to suggest to anyone with that strategy, that sounds a bit, Cognitive, kind of a bit of cognitive dissonance there in my mind. Not that small companies can't be big companies eventually. Not that you know, Woolies were small once, CSL was small once. Um, tech companies, tech will be, I think, one of the biggest and best sectors of the next 25 years. But if you're aiming to buy companies that are in that space now, um, unless they're absolute slam dunks, you should assume some of them are going to not pass muster. Uh, and some of them do really, really well. Uh, I'm not so sure whether it's the right strategy for everybody to be buying small and tech stocks with the aim of holding them forever. Um, because the chance of finding those businesses re rel sorry, re relative to buying them and then getting out when they do well, if you get, if you get your value recognized or if things go well. You know what I mean? Not every, not every small company even that does well in the next five years is going to be around in 40 years, let alone being making money in 40 years. So if you're if you're if it's an aim, i.e., we aim to hold for the long term, but we'll sell in in the meantime if it makes sense, then go for it. If you're looking for genuine, I'm never going to sell these. You probably, in my view, want companies that are more proven. Uh, you won't get the same size outperformance from those companies, but you will never have to sell in theory. And I, I, let me pick some numbers just for the fun of it: Woolies or Sol Pats, which I own, or uh, I don't know, West Farmers, right? Doesn't mean you may still have to sell those as well, by the way. Um, but but if you're buying something now at twenty something, aiming to never sell it until you you know in retirement and get dividends from it or something, uh, it's a very 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 long putt with small companies in my view. Just because they are small, they are generally new. You can have small companies that are long lasting, just in really profitable little niches, and never going to be bigger, I suppose. Um, but just think about, make sure your investment selection is uh, is in accordance with your portfolio objective, portfolio strategy. Because uh, that may be something that seems to me a little bit different. An ETF you could hold forever, um, almost by definition, doesn't mean you should. Uh, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean you can't do better picking stocks. But an ETF would would fit that mold. So if you if you genuinely are trying to say I'm buying this with a 50 year holding period, just think about what sort of business you would need to find to meet that criteria. Otherwise, there's a bit of distance in the in the portfolio construction in my mind. Mm. Yep. And that's no that's no that's no criticism about small and tech stocks. By the way, Ram owns heaps of them. I own a few of them. Uh, I'm not saying don't own them. I'm saying they're wrong to own. I just don't think. Are there any stocks you would you would happily in your portfolio say I'll shut the drawer and pick them up in 2070, mate? Um, no, I don't. Ooh, I don't think so. And that's not it, bad, by the way. So you should. You should. I'm not saying you should do that either, Dan. I'm not saying that should be the goal. I'm just saying check the goal and the selection. Make sure they align. Whichever way you do it, you might say I'll ditch the I'll ditch the hole to retirement and make money out of them, and that's great too. So I'm not suggesting you should not buy smaller tech stocks. I'm just saying keep the strategy aligned with the, with the stock selection. It's just that I mean that's my intention. Like yes, yeah. If I had my way, 
Yeah, I yeah, wouldn't exactly. touch them. And I, and I wouldn't touch them because yeah. they, they just keep, you know, um, delivering. Um, yeah, perfect. And that's where the real life changes happen. It goes from yeah, cap, right. micro cap, small cap, and then it's in exactly. the ASX 200. And, you know, it's just- Exactly. It, it, that is, that is uh, a thing of beauty. And mm. and I've said many times, the worst thing you can do is is sell because you've made a nice little profit all, along the way and, and really just talk yourself out of incredible long-term compounding returns. So, so- but I say that it, would I would I be happy to like commit to not selling? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what often more often than not is that they don't deliver on expectations. It's 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 yeah, very exactly. venture capital like type yeah, returns. Yeah, well, right. I for every ten investments I make in small cap growth, I fully expect <laughs> six seven to not do well. And you think, well, why would you do that? Well, it's because the ones that do well do really well. Yeah. You know, they, they can only quote unquote only go down a hundred percent. Um, but the others can go like I could have a ten bagger, a hundred bagger, you know, and and that sort of make, means that everything is is okay. So mm. it's yep. different with when you have the Berkshires of the world, whatever they are, so mature and so dominant and so moted that that's a different proposition, you know. And and the the cash flow, nothing is guaranteed in life, but the cash flows are far more certain. And it's not so much a question of will they. Grow, grow or not, but will they still be around and making a profit? And will it mm. more, you know, probably be a little bit above what rate of inflation we experience over that time? It's just, it's just a, it's just a different bet. Um, so for those kinds of companies, yes, I'd be far more comfortable to to do that. Yeah, I like that, mate. Hey, um, really interesting question. I'm going to have to stretch my brain here. Um, so Lockie says, "Hi, Scott and Ram, love the pod." It has to be said, apparently. I don't know if he means it has to be said because he believes it or it has to be said because- <laughs> You don't get your question, question answered. answered. Exactly. <laughs> I have two questions for you both, says Lockie. First, I'm currently halfway through reading Peter Lynch's book called One Up on Wall Street. I think I've heard you both mention it before on the pod and was just wondering what were each of your favorite takeaways from the book? Can you remember? Gosh. I, I do like the idea of- looking at the companies that you have an experience with you know there's a there's a big line out the door of a particular shop you know when you when you see people lining up for the latest iphone that's a signal yeah you know and it doesn't mean that you buy or you know i had a great experience with uh a particular company and now i'm definitely going to buy it um but i do think it's a great place to start um and i that that resonated with me in in the book I loved, and I quote this a lot, I think it's from the book, not just a quote or a speech he gave. I do love the idea of know what you own and why you own it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, that is just brilliant. It's such yeah. a simple idea, but it's like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, not because the shares are going up and I think they'll continue to go up. And I heard some idiot on a podcast say that, you know, it was a good <laughs> bet. You know, there's, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. there, there's, the, yeah, that, that is, that is something I think I've said before, if I was to get a tattoo, that'd be, a, that'd be a leading candidate, right? Um, <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think now. Uh, I don't, any, any come to mind from the book? Um, I, so no, I think you're, um, so a couple of things. I think it, it absolutely talks to small cap investing because there are places to look that the big guys can't or won't. Um, easy example is Warren Buffett. If you offered Warren Buffett a $100 million opportunity, you probably wouldn't take it. 
He mm. definitely wouldn't take a million dollar opportunity because mm. he just can't, can't move the dial for the company. Mm. And if you're a large fund and you need to be investing in that sort of stuff, you just can't play in the, the little space, little end of the market. So there's really big opportunities there. Um, the scuttlebutt stuff, which is kind of a different version of what you said about um, about you know the things you already had experience with, kind of takes it the extra extra level of find out what other people are saying about it, what's actually going on. Um, so it's just a variance of, of on your point. Um, so I think that's I think that's true. Uh, I like that a lot. Um, I think it's I think for my when it comes to what I love about Lynch is his point about anyone can do it and that we can beat the professionals or at least be on a level playing field with the professionals. I think that one for me is is important. Um, he also, he was kind of the first person to talk about the 10-bagger. Mm. The idea is that, you've already talked about that, Ram, about the big, the big outperformer. And I think that idea of popularizing super long-term, buying growing companies uh, that have real potential. I think there's... You've probably already heard that one before, Lockie, but that's for me, that's that's probably the, the biggest new insight. Again, it's hard to kind of think back to when I first read it rather than what I get from it now. And I, I read, I'm going to mention, I'm reading Poor Charlie's Almanac again. A lot of it's kind of like, oh yeah, I knew that, but I know it because I've heard someone say it or Charlie said it in the past. Um, so it's kind of hard to go back and say, well, if I didn't have never read this book, what I think. That 10 bagger idea, the rather than taking a, a 5%, 10% profit or a 20, 100% profit, uh, the idea of finding businesses that can keep growing and growing and growing, keep compounding your money, uh, really, really valuable for me. Mm. Um, so, lucky second question, mate. He says, second, I'm a relative beginner investor, 30 years old, bastard, and looking to ensure I'm well diversified in the share market. My current strategy for diversifying is to eventually own shares in at least one business in each of the 11 sectors I see on Comsec's website. I'm currently holding shares in six businesses across five different sectors. I also hold shares in two ETFs, a ASX 200 and an S&P 500. What are your thoughts on this diversifying diversification strategy? What's the best way to diversify in the share market? Thanks for the great work you both do. Cheers, Lockie. I don't like Go it. On. <laughs> don't like Tell it. Tell me why. Tell Lockie why. I, I, I'm not going to be critical at all, Lockie, because lots of um, well-paid experts suggest that's exactly what you do. Yes. Um, you know, I call the but, Noah's Ark strategy, two of everything. Two of everything, you yeah, know. Yeah. It kind of guarantees that you can always look at something that's doing really well. Um, the trouble is, is that why w- – the, the point of diversification is not to have all my e- eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. And, and what I really want is non – or assets that aren't too highly correlated. The easy example being, you know, I just own all the banks. You're not, you're not diversified at all. Um, but I can do that without having access to gold or do I need access to, uh, uh, retail or there's just, there's just some, there's a lot of industries and sectors that are just sucky and they're not sucky because there's, they're run by evil, corrupt, incompetent <laughs> people. They're just, they're just in yeah. extraordinarily cutthroat industries that are just mm. brutally, brutally difficult. And it's like, well, why? Why am I having? If my, if the only reason to invest there is because it is a different sector, 
as defined by someone at S&P who's come up with these sector classifications. <laughs> you know, it's madness. I mean, all, yeah, uh, when I look yeah. at my, I think Comsec gives you a chart of sector diversification. It's like, it's not, mm -hmm. there's like this know, very like big chunks of these, these pie slices are very big. Yep. And you would look at that and go, oh my gosh, he is hyper concentrated because, you know, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of tech mm -hmm. and growth in, mm -hmm. in there. And I would say, yeah, but these companies are vastly different. The only thing that they have in common is that the product offering is technology-based, is software-based. Mm. Other than that, they service very different niches, very different uh, industries, very different customers. But according to Bloomberg or S&P, you know, they, <laughs> no, they're all, they're all the same. Like, they're right. not. They're not all the same. Um, um, so, so that's 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 why tech, I think tech it is, is my different. favorite one. The tech sector, which is oh. just it's yep. everything. You know, Amazon through through printed circuit board makers through to Apple through to like just you know. Oh mate, here we go. Well, why don't we just call Dusk Group that sells scented candles the same as Woolworths because it's retail. Right. Exactly. Like what? Uh, you know, you know, someone will go, yeah, but one's discretionary and one's staples. Yeah, but still, like you know. W What's the definition of, of these sectors? How different are they? I, I would say they're just like so radically different within that space. So it's Even a staples, very mate, you have everything from wine to groceries yes. to agriculture. Yeah. I've, I read right. about this recently. The Australian Agricultural Company, one of the biggest property owners in the country, next to Woolies, next to a winemaker. It's like, well, they kind of all do foodish kind of things, but yeah. Yeah. And then look, even within mining, like, okay. Yes, right. Well, what are you mining? Well, I'm doing copper. Or what are you doing? Lithium. Like, oh, okay. Seems different to me. Earths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah. They're, they're different. So, so, so the so lucky the intent is right. Your intent is spot on. Mm -hmm. Just don't be guided by some numpty at an investment bank that that has decided <laughs> to come up with a, a classification, you know, scheme. What you want is is to I would say sort of aim for a minimum of ten and just mm -hmm. make sure that they're not they're not all. Uh, there's not a big overlap in terms of the customers and industries that they are servicing. If if they all happen to be in in a very broadly defined sector, but they have very different customers and very very different um, head and tailwinds, then yeah, mm. that's totally cool for me. Yep, uh, I completely agree, Lucky. I don't uh, I don't blame. You. Look, you're not going to. Uh, the other thing, by the way, if you diversify too broadly, you end up just getting the market result anyway. You might as well buy an ETF and be done yeah. with it. So you kind of want to. You kind of want to be. If you're picking stocks, you want to be active. We talk about active and passive, and I, I sometimes suggest that passive is better than active. It's not. It's just very different. My my criticism of people who pretend they're being passive and being active doing it is is a problem. But if you're going to be active, be active. Um, to Rand's point, diversify your risk. Uh, don't don't buy one of everything. You know, you don't know. You don't buy one of everything. Uh, but don't buy five lines and nothing else. Right. Um, grab a couple of lines, grab a couple of unicorns. No, I forgot those. Very, very important. Um, but, uh, you know, more broadly, yeah, think about what you're exposed to. Think about what's going to bring you down. Separate volatility, by the way, from real genuine risk too, um, at least in terms of your own long-term returns. If you're someone who needs protection from volatility because you just can't deal with share prices jumping around, that's different. Um, but if you're someone who it doesn't matter about the volatility, then really what you're looking for is, you know, where where are my best chances of upside relative to the downside risk I'm taking, and spread enough so that you're not making the same bet four or five times. In which case, you're really making one single bet, and if you're wrong, you're going to be spectacularly wrong. You want to make four or five different bets on four or five different things. Mm. Uh, it doesn't mean not everything, just mm. just four or five different things you believe in, or I don't mean four or five, literally ten plus, as Ram says. But you know, pick a range of things. Say so, right, well, I think e-commerce is going to be big. Cool. So I'll buy an e-commerce retailer. Uh, I think 
technology is going to continue to grow and uh, people are going to cloud, cloud computing is going to be the future. Okay, so I've got a, mm-hmm. I've got a retail I've got an e-commerce bet and I've got a, by the way they're both tech or considered tech. But I've got a retail bet. I've got a, a cloud computing bet. Okay, cool. Uh, I also happen to think that and you play it out from there. And then you use that as long as they're different ideas, as Ram says, with different um, risk profiles, different interactions, different customers, different inputs, different success factors. That's what diversification is, not buying just two of everything. Yep. Um, mate, uh, Jalen sends an email who says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. Love the podcast, guys. Thank you. And you what did your wisdom- We're not, we're not a- answering unless you say that. <laughs> <laughs> and what did your wisdom as a novice investor? Could you please explain the futures to me? What is it exactly? A crystal ball look at the following day? An opportunity to buy and sell outside of normal hours? I need to know. Keep up the great work. My, my, my net just dropped just as the front, the front <laughs> half of that question. I will, take the, I will take it then. Uh, okay. what, what, what are the futures is the only question that was being asked. So I will, I'll, I'll take it and you can jump in. Okay. Um, so basically what happens is there is a whole lot of, it, it's sophisticated betting. Uh, it started off, we talked about this a little bit on Friday. It started off with farmers who said, look, I got a, I got a crop of wheat and I've got to put all this money in. I've got to buy the seed, buy the tractor, water it, uh, you know, farm it, do, do the farming things to the wheat, <laughs> which I should know, but I don't. Uh, and then I'm going to try and sell it. Now I can do that and hope that when, I, when I've harvested the wheat, I've got a buyer for it. And I can sell it and get it to market and everything's good. But what they said was actually, well, if I could find a buy, if I go to, if I go to the to uh, wheat picks, I go to sanitarium and say, mate, you make wheat picks. I got some wheat. Can we? You need to know you're going to be able to get some because you need to make a certain number of wheat picks for for Aussie kids who are wheat picks kids. Yeah. And so you need to uh, you need to have a certain number of wheat picks. I'm selling some wheat. I'd like to know I've actually got a customer for this. Why don't you and I do a deal now that in the future, which is the key word, we will exchange some money for the for the crop at an agreed price at an agreed time. And you go, yeah, and that makes perfect sense for both parties, right? So physical futures, I think, are really, 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 really great. Artificial or synthetic futures, things that don't relate to a physical product, I think are stupid, uh, which alienates me from most people, particularly options traders who always flame me when I say these things on Twitter. Uh, if it was up to me, I'd ban them altogether. It's never going to happen. I'm not actually going to do it, but it, they're, they're completely unnecessary. The futures basically, mate, are people betting on literally a future price of an asset, and you can take both sides of that. You can say, I think it'll be less than that. Andrew says, I think it'll be more than that. And one of us will be right. One of us will make money. The other one will lose money. And that's literally all it is. So on a daily basis, there is a, um, a, 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 a whole group of a lot of people with a lot of money betting on what the ASX 200 will be at the end of trade tomorrow. So the ASX futures will be the price at which those people are doing those deals. So they think that tomorrow by close of trade, the market will be at a number that's half a percent higher than it is now or was on Friday afternoon. That's all it is. It's literally all it is. You can buy futures out further. There are other so-called derivative contracts or derivative products, derivative because they derive their value from something else. So you can you can have an option on buying shares in Woolworths in three years' time at 60 bucks or selling BHP in six months' time at, I don't know the current BHP share price, 20 bucks or 60 bucks. Um, it's just it's it's sophisticated gambling in a suit and a, and a shiny office, which makes it seem like it's reasonable. Uh, there are limited reasons to do it, almost entirely made up. Uh, physical product, physical futures, I think are great. Other futures, I think, are just ridiculous, and they should be at the tab rather than at the stock market. But that's just my view. Ram, that was a bit of a rant slash answer. Do you have anything you want to add to that? 
Oh, look, there, there are some legitimate use cases for that kind of stuff. Oh, come if, on. Oh, look, if you're- You don't normally, you don't normally mention your words. You don't mean, I'm normally the one who's doing this. <laughs> uh, like, you, maybe um, you've got some shares as collateral, or, you know, as a large financial institution. You want to make sure the money is there for a deal that you're looking to um, uh, make in the, in the very near term. So you just sort of want to hedge out mm. your position so that any near-term volatility is not going to impact you. You know the price you're going to get. Yeah. You know the price you're going to get. Same that's in the kind of, that's, I will say that's something I didn't mention is currencies. People do that the same way. If you're going to right. take if you're going to take a shipment of tuna in, in, a, in a month's time and you've got to pay a certain number of Thai baht for that tuna yeah. and you've got a certain number of Australian dollars, it, it, you, want, you want to basically know you can convert the money to Thai baht at, at a given rate so you can make that payment at, at yep. that point in time. There's some, there's some value on that too. Even outside of that, I get to, I, I guess it's ideology, but I kind of think, look, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of gambling on horses, hmm. but I'm not going to outlaw it. You know, yeah. I, 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 should, should people do it? I wouldn't, I don't, I don't muck around with that kind of stuff. Um, even where there is legitimate use cases, I, you know, there's, <laughs> there is a lot of degenerate just gambling on that, but yeah. you know, yeah. your money, you want to do it that way and you know, have, Fill your boots, I say. Um, I'm, oh, when, I'm not- when I say abandon, I, I, I think it's it's a corruption of the system. I don't think I'd actually, I don't think I'd bother. Of all things, I would change or ban or bring in or whatever. I don't think this would be one on top of my list. And just, I, I think it's it's a distraction and it's useless and it adds very little additional value. And if the market didn't have it, we'd be perfectly fine. It's, yeah, it's a, a more a more subtle way of me putting it. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's a folly, but it's just a folly I'm not going to participate yeah. in. But I, I don't want to. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm not saying you said this but i i, I wouldn't mm. want to stop others from doing it if if they wanted to do yeah, it for sure. you know for um sure. i buy a lottery ticket every week yeah. <laughs> i pay the i pay the hope tax <laughs> you know is it's that a stupid ra- tax you up, you've upgraded your uh, your tax name now yeah hope hope is less less the, the, the uh, PR confrontational tax <laughs> yeah. the pr team's been working on that one Oh, but it's just you know it, yeah is, no, there, right. any, is right. there any rational reason for me to do that no yeah. But I'm happy enough to do it. I mean, I'm not. I'm not sitting at 3 a.m. at the local leagues club, like <laughs> putting you know $800 in into a pokey machine either. There's a spectrum along along that line, and maybe at one point you have you have. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know where sort of futures trading comes mm. comes at that. I tell you what, I am against is you see um, from time to time people on uh, YouTube or wherever offering courses to trade futures and stuff <laughs> and that i'm really against because they are they are misrepresenting the the, the severe risks there they're attracting Correct. people who yeah. tend to be a bit desperate um and aren't aren't um a little bit naive in in the ways of of these markets mm. and you know you always think well if it was that easy why aren't you doing it you're making your money by selling a dream to someone and a system right. and right. trade FX and look out. I, you know, I, I work two hours a day from home and here's my Ferrari and I do it all because <laughs> I paid for this course. And you're like, I'm really against that kind of stuff. So buyer yeah, beware okay. on, on, on that. Um, yeah, but you know, it, it, it's out there. The same way we, we, we have the same discussion of short selling and, and all the rest of it. Yes. And it's sort I was of- I going to mention that one, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's, it is a- mm. I mean, how paternal do we want to be? It, and I yeah. really do flip and flop on this because the example I gave with all these dodgy operators selling futures trading courses and stuff, you know, it's like, should should we ban them? Mm. Like, I, I probably have some sympathy for that because I think they're all scumbags. Um, but then people say, well, then maybe we should ban this and ban that. And it's just like, well, right. it's a very slippery slope. It's a very slippery slope. So I, I actually, 
it, it's a it's a it's a tough one. But in terms of what we're talking about here and now on the podcast, to those that mm. are listening, you know, you do what you want to do. You're you're an adult. It's your money. But I would do it. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, the banner thing's funny, mate. I I I'm actually really happy being in the middle of a slippery slope. You know, I think. I think the argument, the slippery slope argument is generally used. So we can't do this because that it might happen. It's like, you know, uh, and that's kind of, you know, if, if we, if people say, oh, if we increase taxes, then government will take all their money away from us. So, well, guess what, sport? There's already been taxes for, you know, 100 something, 200 years. You know, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, but it's going to. Well, well, okay, sure. You know, like, so, so we should have no tax in case one, one element of tax means government take all their money. They, I think, I think, I think there is, uh, you're, being, you're being very generous, mate, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, I'm okay on the slippery slope. It's like you know what, I, I'm I'm an, I'm a pragmatist, right? I'm not an ideologue. I'm a pragmatist, and it's simply a case of maximizing the gains and minimizes the losses. Governments do it every day. That's what our laws are. Our laws are. I will stop you doing that thing. I was thinking about, you know, the other day. You know, CPR signs in pools, right? I was literally. <laughs> this is this is how bad my life is. I was laying in bed at some ungodly hour because I woke up, and I was thinking to myself. I wonder what the ROI is in terms of lives saved based on the number of the amount of money people spend on CPR signs in pools. Because you have to have one if you've got a pool, right? You've got to put it up mm-hmm. on the thing. So this is, oh, I, don't, I don't know why I'm thinking about this. I just am. And uh, I don't know the answer to that, right? I'm, and I, don't, I don't mind doing it because it costs five bucks for a sign. And if it saves a life, then you know who cares? But there is, to your point, a slippery slope. What, what else do you do? We've got pool fences. Okay. You've got the signs. Okay. What else do you need? What shouldn't you need? What should you need? All that kind of stuff. And it's Every home pool should have a lifeguard on, on duty. Right. Exactly. Like, yes, really? Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, 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 no kid under 18 will be allowed in the pool unless a parent is within five meters of them. Yep. Yeah. Oh, no pool should be deeper than 10 centimeters right. exactly yeah. exactly yeah. and so so the, the but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have pool fences because right. we because we you know so it's I, yeah. I think we i think it's i think it's okay to be pragmatically picking a spot and saying okay we acknowledge there's no perfect like we're talking about again on friday there's no perfect answer to this all we can do is use our best judgment and say on the balance of i'll say return on i'll say roi i don't mean mm. literal physical cash return on cash mm. money but based on what we ask people to go without or to have to do or to do more of or less of or whatever it is for the outcome I want, then there's a there's a return there. There's a there's a potential return. And if I can make that work, is is it worth a sign in my pool so that some kid doesn't drown in Western Australia in two years' time? To my mind, absolutely. Now, I know CPR. Is there a chance that someone dies in my pool and there happens to be a sign there and the person who happens to be there happens to see the sign, use the sign to kick save someone's life? Maybe. And if it wasn't there, I'd feel terrible. So, but, but, you know, as you say, is it, if the pool, you know, maybe it was less than 10 centimeters, I, I'd be okay too. So then what do you do? Mm. Um, there's no perfect answer. I think, I think this is where good people, it's getting a bit philosophical, good people with, with, with goodwill find an answer or, or work out what combination of factors. Where do we draw that line? It's a, it's a fuzzy line. It has to be. Mm. Um, I, I think, I think that's okay. I, I, I don't, well, would I ban them? Probably not because that, that, that's overreach in terms of nanny state stuff. I think, I would, I, I would, I would actively discourage anyone from ever doing it. Would I ban it? Probably not. Short selling, I might. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, would I do it for futures contracts? Probably not. Um, and again, it's on the basis of who's doing it. What's the impact they're having? CFDs, for example, contracts for difference have been effectively banned because they were, you know, it was effectively a gambling product being offered on the ASX. God, I That's hated probably- CFDs. <laughs> What's probably what I, you know what I'd probably do with futures? I'd probably make them go to a different exchange. Mm. And of course, you can do that, but let's not pretend this is investing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of you've got to a sign of- a form that says, "I, Scott Phillips, acknowledge right. that this is hyper risky." Yeah, 
And I, I am doing this in full awareness that the vast majority of people lose money doing this. And it might not be sports bet, but it shouldn't be the ASX either. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. this, is not, this is not investing. And, you know, so you, can you access it? Yes. Um, maybe there's a, a higher brokerage or maybe there's a, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I think there's, there's, some, there's more we can do to help people not fall victim to, frankly, the shysters and the charlatans mm. and the sprookers. And we shouldn't do all those things. Mm. Should, we, should we stop them arbitrarily forever doing it if they want to? I don't think so. I think as long as they're, as long as they're properly well-informed and understand, yeah. and as long as they're not incapacitated in some way that makes them you know, more vulnerable than average to, to be taken advantage of. But yeah. I think in those circumstances, you probably leave it. But let's, let's not call it investing on the Australian Securities Exchange. Let's call it, you know, what, I don't know, whatever what you want to do with it. The, yeah. the nudge thing, I think, of, um, of behavioral psychology probably helps a lot here as well. Yep. Yep, I like that. On that philosophical note, mate, I reckon we are done. Mate, will you join me on Friday? Can we yes. Oh, you, you know, it's a highlight of the week, so you couldn't stop me if you tried. There you go. Is mine to email. Email. Start again. As at info at fool.com.au. If you want your question answered on the mailbag, we'll do our level best to get it done. Until next Friday, when we have a chance to rant and rave and carry on and hopefully make your lives a bit more interesting, a bit more fun. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.